Well, good morning, y'all. I know that we had some uh, technical issues, uh, and so if y'all will, on the, if you're watching this right now, let me know if, uh, if we're on the stream, if you can hear us. And so uh, we're a little delayed here, so I probably won't get that confirmation quite yet, but uh, just let us know so that we can go. Um, I will tell you that uh, the worship was fantastic. Joey was a little off-key, so you're not going to be able to hear that, but no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It was fantastic. Uh, I'm sorry that hopefully in spirit you could tell how good it was, but they, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, now, we're going to continue in our series uh, on Genesis, the story of us. And I just want to tell you that this has been a powerful series uh, to me personally. As I've studied, I've learned every single week. I've learned something new just from studying this. And then from in our connect groups, we talk about this, and I've heard uh, just great points every single week. But I do want to go back and just kind of, as we go into the text, I want us to, re- to remember that there are layers to this thing. As, uh, as Shrek says, there are layers to an onion. There are layers to this thing. And, but as a, as a Christ follower or somebody who's trying to seek God, you don't have to go to the lowest level, okay? You don't have to get into all the Hebrew and all the Greek and all the different uh, layers that we find because these stories are made to be simple. These stories are made so that children can understand them and, and so can scientists so that we can go to the level. But remember, they're simple not because God is simple. They're simple because we are simple. So they're never going to be as complex as you might think something written by God would be because he's writing it to us. We're not writing it to him. And so that also means when we take these stories, the way we're handling these stories in this series is we're not bringing a whole bunch of questions and saying, well, the Bible needs to tell us, um, you know, scientifically, how did God create? We think that would be an absurd thing. But we also say the Bible is not intended for that. We also are not asking, uh, you know, when exactly did Adam and Eve live this and that, because the Bible is trying to use these stories to teach us. And so what we're doing is we're reading the stories and we're simply taking the stories as we get them. And one of the things that I want you to see in these stories, the reason that we are just reading them the way they come, it's because that they are written at a beautiful, beautiful level of uh, of. A literature, and that is that there are just so many literary devices that we don't even see in the text uh, on your first reading. But I just want to at least show you that they're there. I want to—I'm going to open up a commentary here, and I just want to um, point out that there's a lot more going on. And again, you don't have to always dive to this level, but but I at least want you to see that this is bit, being written as a beautiful book of literature, and. Uh, and there are certain things that, that we'll see. There's foreshadowing, and we're going to start off with some foreshadowing to, in today's text, which is Genesis chapter 4. But listen to this. This is, um, this is a commentary, and it talks about, and I'm going to use some words, and I'll explain them. Uh, I always use words, though. So that's kind of a weird thing. to. That's a weird disclaimer. <laughs> I'm going to use words in this sermon, y'all. It's going to be better than, than the non, nonverbal sermons I preach. Um, It says that there is a a numerical symmetry within this book. Throughout the Pentateuch, which is the first five books, the Torah, it says the sevenfold use of divine speech is a formula that is commonplace. And within this chapter, the number seven is clearly significant. And so here's one thing that's going on in Genesis chapter four and in the first really 11 chapters of Genesis in these stories. They're using the number seven in a pretty interesting way. Rather than bold lettering, you know, to say, hey, this word's important, they'll use it in multiples of seven. 
And so it says Lamech, who he's the, the main guy in Genesis 4 as the second part of the Cain and Abel story, which we're not going to get to today. We'll get to next week. He's the seventh generation. And then it goes on to say, there are key words that appear in multiples of seven. Abel and brother occur seven times. Cain appears 14 times within the, the story um, of chapter four. The word earth is mentioned seven times. Land is mentioned 14 times. God, the Lord, or the Lord God is mentioned 35 times, exactly matching the 35 occurrences of God in Genesis chapter one, which means the last verse of chapter four, which says at that time, the people began to call on the name of the Lord contains the 70th mention of of God in Genesis 1 through 4, and it also is the 14th use of the word call. Now, all that to you is, y'all know your head's spinning. Wow, that's fascinating. But what I want you to see is that this is a, a powerful book, but there are even, uh, the way it was put together, there are some, some levels here that most of us don't think on as far as how they're highlighting, what, what they're emphasizing, what's important. The fact that God is exactly 70 um, in, through these stories is saying, hey, that's the most important thing about these stories is God. And then when it talks about brother being seven times, that means, hey, there's something that's important about the relationships that we have in life. And so the word call 14 times, it, that when God is calling for us, we need to remember God is calling for us. So I say all that to say, when was the last time you used a, you looked through a science book and it said, you know what, osmosis must be important because it's coming in multiples of seven. Right. In other words, this is we're reading this as a great piece of literature, which we believe is divinely inspired, but it's divinely inspired to teach us the things that God thinks is important. It's not necessarily that we have questions that God may not think that's really not the point of the story. So we're reading these stories and we're absorbing what God is teaching us. We're not reading into it a thousand questions that the story is not speaking to, because there's going to be some things that we're going to get to at the end of the story that are just going to Maybe if you're astute, you're going to be like, ding, ding, wait a second. This doesn't add up. This doesn't add up. We're going to address those at the end of this. Let's go ahead and jump in. Are you all excited about this? All right. I hope you are, okay? At home, I hope that you have put your waffles down. You have put tape over the kids' mouths. You are ready. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Do not do that. Um, it says, now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, uh, Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now this word gotten is where we get the name Cain. So she probably named him Cain saying, I have gotten this child. And uh, it could mean acquired. But one of the things that you'll see about this is she named him that. She named him because she had received something, but she also saw it was kind of divine that God was still in this. So even though it was her and Adam that physically made it, she still knew this is a gift from God. She has still kept God in the picture in this. Now, the second son, Abel, is a little different. It says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, it doesn't say she named Abel. And I don't think, to tell you the truth, that she would have actually named him Abel because the word Abel comes from a word we met well in Ecclesiastes. It comes from the word hevel or hebel, and it means mist or smoke. So in other words, there's foreshadowing at the beginning of this chapter saying that, hey, Cain was something that she acquired, and he's also going to take on an attitude, kind of an entitlement attitude that, uh, hey, 
these are my things. This is the way I do things. So we're going to see kind of that. But Abel has this foreshadowing that he's not going to be with us very long. And he's the second son, which in every Jewish culture, especially the one that where they were writing this, which was at least um, around the time of Moses, maybe a little after with some editing, one of the things that we'll see is that the firstborn would have been the favored one by God. But in this one, there's foreshadowing. Keep watching or keep reading. It says this. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Now, why was that said? Because there's more foreshadowing going on here. A keeper of sheep. If you know anything about the Bible, you know shepherds are important. David was a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. But even more important than that, when we read in the garden in Genesis 3, man was given this job before the fall, before they had rebelled against God. And that was you get to be a part of the dominion. You get to oversee all of the beasts of the field. And so Abel has this kind of favored uh, position, even though he's the second son. And then Cain is a worker of the ground. Now, what do we know about the ground? Y'all, go ahead, answer it here. Hard work. And it was cursed in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, and that was the curse. The curse was it's going to be hard work. And so uh, we see kind of this foreshadowing that Abel has some favor with God. And in his in his. Uh, profession, you can even see this. And then Cain, it's not that it's bad to work the, the um, ground. In fact, we all in some way are called to work the ground. But one of the things that we see here is there's foreshadowing, letting us know, hey, something something's not right with Cain. There's a lot of things going on literarily here that we should take note of. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now, a couple of things I want to talk about, about this idea of offerings, okay? Because here's the truth, is that our offerings, um, our sacrifices we make to God, they show us, or they show God our love for him, our relationship. But I want to remind us, in fact, in every religion, there is pretty much this idea of sacrifices. And, and you know, even if you go to, into the Amazon jungle, you're probably going to come across a, a tribe of people who sacrifice to God. But to my knowledge, at least, the only, uh, the only religious tradition that starts off with God sacrificing to us is the Bible. Now, if you'll remember last week, we said that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says that they were naked and ashamed. And it says in verse 21 of last week's chapter 3, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed him. So the first animal's life that was taken was when God, God took an animal, he killed an animal, and he covered Adam and Eve. So the first sacrifice, the sacrifice that God makes for you and I is one of atonement. It's one of covering. It's one that covers our shame, covers our guilt. And so anytime we talk about being good enough for God, being right with God, it's never our offerings to him. It's always his offering to us. This is a key point that is all throughout the Bible. Okay. So why do we bring offerings? So God brings offerings, God brought an offering, a sacrifice to us, and he covered our sin, he covered our shame, he forgave us. But we bring offerings as a goodwill, as a, as a sacrifice to show our relationship, our love of God. 
Now, some of you grew up in traditions. Did y'all ever grow up in a tradition where, or you've heard people say, maybe you've thought this, is, you know what, I need to do something for God. I need to do something good for God so that I can get into heaven or so I can do, so I can be on the right side of God, God's will. But that's not what we find in the, in the Bible. What we find is God sacrificing first to us, saying, hey, I want to cover your sin. I want the relationship to be right. And so in Genesis chapter 4, there's an offering for the first time we see, though, men bringing an offering to God, and, and we can see the heart of what God is driving at with why we give in this word brought. Y'all say brought. You got to brought your offering, okay? Doesn't say you took your offering, okay? Doesn't say you take an offering. Sometimes in church we say take an offering. You know, unless you're living on the, the east side of Wiley, they don't, that's where they take offerings. You know, hey, if, if you don't go east, Wiley, if, if that's not their gang sign, if you go to east, to Wiley East, and you don't throw up that, what are you doing, right? Now, was I talking about, what was I talking about? Sacrifices, okay. Now, when we, we don't, we don't take, God doesn't take offerings. We bring our offerings. And this is a big part of what God wants. And so we, at Connection Point Church, we say um, relationship over religion. In other words, we want that relationship with God rather than just going through, hey, God wants me to do this, this, and this. We also say uh, another priority we have in this church is remarkable over routine. We always want to approach God as if, man, this is awesome. I love being around God. This is a a new Sunday. I get to worship with, with, with my friends. I get to just tell God how great he is. I want it to be remarkable. So sometimes we go above and beyond simply because we want it to be remarkable when people come into our church, people come online. We've invested a lot. We've got lights. We've got all these things so that when you watch this, you're like, man, they do a good job because we think meeting with God is a remarkable thing. We never want it to just be routine. But when, when Cain brings his offering, it just says Cain brought an offering. Now he might've brought a whole bunch and thought, okay, I'm just going to do the deal. I'm going to bring a lot of fruit, bring a lot of vegetables, and that'll be enough. And, and, it, and it was technically enough. He brought an offering. But when we see the way that, that Abel brings the offerings. It says, in the Hebrew, it says it like this. He brought the the fattest of the firstborn. In other words, there's this picture of him, oh, Sunday's coming, or maybe it was a festival. Who knows what the the occasion was? Maybe it was something they did a lot. But he goes out and he's like, okay, I'm going to get all my firstborn. The first fruits or the firstborn is a big part of an offering. I want to make sure that I I give off the front end because I want to make sure that this is an act of faith. When we give at the beginning of the month with with money saying, hey, God, I trust that what you've given me from last week, I'm going to start off in faith saying, I trust you that you're going to bring me more. So when we bring an offering, it's a statement of faith. If you wait till the end of the month, you pull out your pockets and you say, how much do I have left? And you give that to God. Is that an act of faith? No. And so you see Abel, he comes and he's like, first of all, I trust God's going to do more. But here, here you go, God, here is my first, here's what I have. And then he goes and he finds the fattest, the best one, the one that could, could really just feed his family the best. And he says, I'm going to give that one to God because God has done so much for me. I want to make sure that he knows I just love him. And so there's this heart in, in Abel's offering that we can see that this is about his relationship with God. This is about him just wanting to, to show his faith to God, to show his love for God and just the relationship of God. I just love you. I want you to have my best because I know you have the, my best in mind. Whereas Cain does not. But what we see is Cain looks at the offerings and he sees that they're, he thinks they're equal. He thinks, well, Abel brought an offering and I brought an offering. And maybe they weighed the same amount, whatever it was, but, but the heart matters to God. 
The way we approach God matters. An able approach to God with this reverence of, I'm going to bring him the best. I want to be around God. I want to give him my best because he's given me so much. And, and Cain just kind of approaches. And, and when you approach God with a wrong heart, and you may have even seen this, if you've ever been to, to church and you've just kind of, oh, how long is this guy going to talk? And all of those things. Then sometimes you have, you look around and the people that are into it, you kind of, What's their deal? Man, they're too happy. You ever said, church people are too happy. I don't like being around church, but they're too happy, okay? But understand that that's what happens when our heart isn't right. We look at others and and his countenance um, fails because he starts judging. Instead of being humble and saying, you know what, God, my heart wasn't right. God, I should have brought this with a different attitude. He looks at Abel and says, we did the same thing. God just likes him more. And he did that. God just likes him more. He, things just work out for Abel, but he, he missed the fact that Abel's heart was seeking God. It was seeking that relationship with God. So the first thing I want you to see is that our sacrifices to God, our offerings to God are simply a way in which we can expand our relationship, in which we can show God, I love you, I'm with you, but they are not atonement. Only God brings to us a sacrifice that can cover our sins. Only God's goodness, only his power is able to cover our sins. And so we never give thinking it will make us right with God, it'll make us okay. Or we never walk away saying, you know what, I gave money, I gave this, I did that. So God's got to like me. Instead, we come with a heart of generosity. So that's why we encourage people to give to this church or give to your neighbors when you see them in need and, and give to a place where you are comfortable because that's a way that we just show and we can, we can love God. Now, if you, now, now God sees this, and, and kind of like last week, if you were with us last week, Eve in her heart She conceived the sin before she actually bit of the fruit. And we're going to see this again with Cain. And God recognizes it. Throughout reading this, look at the heart of God. Look at how God's heart, even when he sees this is not going well in Cain's spirit, he's still able to say with a gentleness, this love, even when he knows he's headed down the wrong path, he's trying to bring him back. He says, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Some versions say, will you not be lifted up? Will you not be forgiven? If you, if you will do what, what, what's expected, it will be right. But you came with a, a wrong heart, and he's trying to correct them gently. And he says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is a key idea. You should probably highlight that verse in your Bible. This idea is going to to play out through the rest of the entire Bible and through today and tomorrow in the real world is the fact that sin is always crouching behind us. Think about if you had a, a lion at your door, a real live lion. Do you think he would ever feel safe? Would it ever be wise to just walk out of your door? No, you would always say, you know, before I leave this house, I got to make sure that somebody's done something with that lion, that somebody's taken care of it. Um, and so God gives him this warning, but we see Cain goes out, it says, and he spoke to his brother Abel. This is one of the things I would love to know what he said. But I'll tell you that there's a reason I think it says that they had a conversation before what went down goes down. It says, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. So I think that this was conspired. I think that uh, the, the reason it tells us he spoke 
um, to Abel first is he was convincing him to come out. I think there's some conspiracy going. In other words, this sin was conceived in Abel, I mean in Cain, before he actually did it. And we, got, we have to recognize out of our heart, that's where all of the things of our life will flow out of the heart. That's where the goodness will flow when our heart is right. But that's also when, when our heart is wrong, when we're allowing sin to just crouch all around us, that is when it's going to come out of us. So he rose up and he killed him. And we don't know, this was the first actual murder, but we know that death had been seen when, they, when God took the deer. And so I don't think this was shocking. I think he knew he was going to kill his brother. And he says, uh, so, so God says, where is your brother Abel? He calls to Cain. And just like last week, we saw this last week, God knows the answer, but he calls. And, and last week he said Adam, and he was calling for Adam and Eve. He knew where they were. And this time it's the same thing, except he calls, where's your brother? And Cain's answer should really send some chills because God is speaking. God is giving him this opportunity to confess. To, God's giving him this opportunity which he can bring him back and forgive him and cover his sin and his shame. And instead, he says, I do not know. He lies to God's face. And then he says, am I my brother's keeper? Famous words. Another way to think about this is, am I the shepherd's shepherd? You know, Abel was a shepherd. Am I the one that watches over the shepherd? He's the one. He can take care of himself. Now, the interesting thing about this idea is, is that when we hear, am I my brother's keeper? All of us in our, in our hearts say, yeah, you are your brother. Yeah, you should be watching out for your brother. If you have a brother, you should be watching out. In fact, later on in God's law, it's actually going to say, hey, if your brother is sold into to debt slavery, if he cannot pay his bills and he's forced to, to go and be a servant to somebody else, the brother should come and redeem him is the word it uses. Redeem, in other words, pay his debt. And so there's this idea that, yes, you're your brother's keeper, but what's stark about is just the coldness in Cain, where he, he, he's assuming, I'm not, I'm, I'm not responsible at all. There's this disassociation from this relationship. Remember, God made Eve because you got to be with someone. you got to have somebody here with you. You can't just do, it's not good if it's just me and you, is what God said. We, we need relationships. And here, Cain has already lost sight of the relationship factor. And he says, you know what? I don't need them. They don't need me. And this is where it gets interesting. Now, if you'll remember last week, when God gets mad at Adam and Eve, he, he curses the ground, he curses the snake, but he does not curse Adam and Eve. He goes out of his way, it seems like, to not curse them. But here it says, now you are cursed from the ground. So he cursed the ground when Adam, when Adam sinned, but now the ground is cursing him because that's where the blood was spilled. It was spilled on the ground. And so God says, Cain, you are cursed cursed. In other words, Cain, this is not going to go well for you because you did not repent. You did not take this right. And so we have, and by the way, this is not all men. This is Cain. He's, he's specifically cursing Cain's and, and Cain's lineage. And we're going to see this next week, that this curse is going to remain on the lineage of Cain throughout that, the, the rest of that lineage. It says, your brother, his blood is speaking from the grave. When you work the ground now, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. In other words, you can go and you can make as, you can water as much as you want and it's not going to go well. You are now cursed. And so you're going to have to just wander around and hope that people help you. And Cain says to the Lord, my punishment, some translations say my sin, is, more, is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and away from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There's several things I want you to see. The first thing is that just don't miss the heart of God, even in Cain's sin. Okay, now this translation back up here in verse 13, it says, Cain's reaction when he finds out he's being kicked out of God's presence, presence is, I, my punishment is more than I can bear. Or some versions say, my sin, and both translations work, but notice the difference. That if he says, my sin is more than I can bear, that's a confessional. And so it's, it could be that he's repenting now. But it could be that he's just saying, oh my gosh, the consequences are more than I can bear. And if that's the case, I want you to notice, it still shows us a lot about God's heart. That even though he didn't repent, God still longs for him to do right. God, God still longs to, to bring him back. And so when he sends him out that, and it makes him feel these consequences, it's in hope that he'll come back. So either way, we see God's heart. And it might have been kind of a, a combination of both. And then we have this phrase, east of Eden, that is out of the presence of God. One of the things we've got to understand is that when we sin, it drives us out of the presence of God. Now, Nod is, in the Bible, that word stands for wanderers. It's a place of fugitives. And so Cain is basically put into a place where other wanderers, other fugitives are going to be. It's the people that are away from God. East of Eden represents away from God. Now, when we read this, there's two things I, I think that should jump out at you, okay? And I want to hit them first. The first thing is this, is that God's heart is for all of us. It is for the down and out. If you are the second born, God's heart was for Abel, just like it was for Cain, who was the, the favored one being the firstborn. God's heart is for the down and out. You will see that throughout the Bible, and it's beginning to be established here. But the number one thing you've got to recognize is even though God's heart is for you, Sin is crouching all around us, and it desires to have us. Our sin is serious, and we cannot forget that. Our sin is serious, and it will drive us away from God, who is the creator of all things good for us. Now, before I close this out, though, I do want to address a couple of things that you might have noticed about this text. There are some puzzling things about this. And Have you ever thought about why Cain is so nervous about going and being killed when how many people are on earth if you're just going by this story? There's Adam, Eve, there's no longer Abel, so it's just Cain. So there's three people, and he's going to a place far away, and so why is he worried that somebody's going to kill him? And then if you go to verse 17, I'm going to throw, we're going to go one into 17 into the next passage. It says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived. Now, who is his wife? That's kind of weird. There are these questions that... When we think about, we come with our scientific questions, okay? Well, I've heard people say this to me. I, I, I can't, do you really believe that we all came from, from one couple? You know, that means that it's incest everywhere and that just wouldn't work. We're all, and I want to say a couple of things about this. You know, how do you teach your kids? How do you teach somebody who's, for, or how do you talk about this with someone who is not a believer, who doesn't understand the, the um inspiration of scripture. There's a couple of things I want us to see. The first thing is, it is okay to say, even to your kids, I don't know. I don't know. But, yeah, in fact, let's practice that real quick. 
I don't know. Some of y'all have never said those three words together, and you should if you're going to study the Bible because there's a lot of things I don't know. But I also want to say, um, point out a couple of things. It never says that it was all incestuous. I've heard some commentaries, almost every commentary says, well, obviously there were other sisters and stuff and they had scattered out, but the Bible doesn't say that. It does not say that, okay? And by the way, if you are coming from a scientific background and you think, well, the Bible couldn't be because, understand that, by the way, evolution and every scientific theory runs into the incest problem also. There's, the gene pool has to be big to, to begin. In fact, they say that you need at least 150 different individuals for in order to have a healthy gene pool that can multiply and not cross-contaminate with. Um, and so, I mean, that's a problem that we just have to say, I don't know why. Even if we are, you know, a scientific person that doesn't even accept the Bible, we still have this, I don't know why. Now, the one thing we have about Scripture, though, is we have this other, these other verses of, hey, he has a wife. I don't know how he got her. I don't know who she was, but he, she's there. There are other people around. God has obviously been doing some other things in the story. And so here's what I would say is, here's the answer I, I usually give. God provided. God, hey, how did, who was Cain's wife? Where did he go? God provided. I don't know all the details, but God provided. And the text doesn't even try to hide this. The text says God provided a wife. The text said there were other people. There were other things going on. There was a land of Nod. There was apparently generations of people there. How, where did they come? I don't know. God provided people. God is sometimes working all around, even when it's not in our lives. Do y'all know sometimes you're not the center of the universe? And this is kind of, even in this story, we see God's apparently doing a lot of things. God's doing things, but yet he wants us to see in this story but you know what? One thing that you're going to find out about me, this is what God is telling us, is that when you approach me and you want to have a relationship with me, it will go well. I want to be with you. And even if your life on earth is short, I have this promise of eternity. And it's not because of the sacrifices you brought. It's because of the sacrifice I brought. I'm the one that covers your sin. We learn that in chapter three. And then we see from Cain's story, we see there is a sinfulness to all of us that will drive us from God and it will start in our heart. And here's what I want you to, you to think about. When this story was written, again, this story would have, the earliest it could have occurred was 500 years before it was ever written down. And it would have been told by mothers to their sons and daughters. It would have been told by the, the village uh, elders to their people. And it would have been in response to questions and philosophical questions that make a difference. Why is there evil in the world? Y'all, let me tell you a story about two people, Cain and Abel. Let me tell you what happened in Cain's heart. Why is there, why did good things happen, or why do bad things happen to good people? Hey, let me tell you about a, a guy that was good. He brought good sacrifices and something happened. And you know why it happened? Because there was this evil seed in Cain's heart. So in other words, when we look at these stories, understand the questions that are being answered are huge philosophical, and don't pass this off. Right now, if I were to ask you, what is the, what is the most, uh, what is the worst thing happening in this world right now? What is the worst problem we face as a nation? What is the worst thing? Now, some of y'all, you're going to come and you're going to think about, man, there's division, there's Trump, there's Biden, there's this COVID, there's all these things. But let me tell you, I believe right here, the worst thing in this world is that you and I have a sin problem. And that if you want to know the root of all of this, rather than going back and saying, well, we could fix it if we'd fix the government here, we'd fix it if we could fix this. 
We could fix it if every single one of us would say, you know what? Sin is crouching at my door. And I need to take this serious. I need to look at my life and I need to make sure that anytime there is even a seed that, that I am not right with God, rather than getting mad to the people that seem to be right with God or seem to be favored, I need to, to repent of my heart. I need to confess to God my heart is not right and I need to run to him. And if I will run to him, he will accept me. He will receive me. In fact, he will make a sacrifice to clothe me and to cover me. And if we will do that and keep our hearts focused on God, the sin in our own lives will be wiped away. If you want to know how you change a nation, it's one person at a time making the decision. You know what? I'm going to turn to God to cover my sin. The most important chapter in the Bible might be chapter 4 or chapter 3 of Genesis. When it tells us this is the root of everything we're dealing with in life right now. And the solution starts with us focusing on the only one who can change our hearts and cover our sin. And the great thing about it is that God eventually provided the perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And we've seen him foreshadowed in every single chapter already. We've seen that God is the one that covers sin. And if we will just turn to him, his heart is for us. And that is why Jesus Christ came to this world, lived a perfect, sinless, was the fattest of the firstborn for us. He was the best. And if we will trust in that sacrifice, God says he will cover, he will atone, he will forgive your sin. All of your past, all of your future, you will have a right relationship with God. As you look to this week, and it's tempting to look at the news and just wonder, why is all this going on? What I hope you do is I hope you find comfort in the fact that God made a way. God made a way, and even, even when we flee from him and are, are kicked out of his presence, he invites us back to him with his gentleness. It's in the name of Jesus that I want to, to close this out. Jesus Christ is the covering for our sin. Let's pray. Lord, as we read these scriptures, I, I hope that every single week, whether we're just taking the, the story at, at, at a simple level, the way that a child might read this, Lord, there's so much that you have to teach us, even if it's simply that, you know what, you are good even if it's simply that you know what, you can make a way that your heart is for us. Lord, let us cherish that thought. Let us just long to develop and to seek our relationship with you. And Lord, whenever we have the, just the hint of Cain in our life, the hint of rebellion, the hint that there's something wrong, that we're, we're jealous or envious of other people or that we're, we're somehow blaming you for our shortcomings, Lord, I pray that it will just send alarm bells in our heart and we will be driven to say, you know what, God, I was wrong. I've sinned against you and I want to be right, Lord. I want to receive your covering. I want to receive your forgiveness because you've made us this promise that if we will, if we will do right, if we will seek you, it will go well. We will be forgiven and lifted up. So Lord, this week we want to go out starting with our relationship with you, that we want the world to see our heart is for you because you first showed us your heart was for us. Let us live this out today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.